Hey, glad you're here as we continue to worship God together by focusing our attention upon uh, His Word. And I know we're, we're socially and physically distancing right now, so I'm going to ask you to use your imagination or to tap into your memory banks as we, we talk about uh, Palm Sunday and some of the events around there that begin this Holy Week that marches us toward Easter Sunday. I want you to remember or kind of imagine right now in your mind's eye uh, the last time you were in a, in a huge crowd of people. Uh, maybe it was at a major sporting event. Maybe it was a concert or a festival. Maybe it was uh, in, a, in a, one of our major uh, urban centers, uh, just a, a crowd of humanity around. Maybe your, your memory banks go to an international trip and you were in a city in another country and, and you just feel, I just want you to kind of use your, close your eyes if it'll help, but use kind of a sanctified imagination for a few moments and and just kind of feel the, the jostling of the crowd as we bump up against each other. I hear the, the noise of, of, of thousands of conversations taking place, somebody yelling across the way. Perhaps there's, there's folks on all the sides uh, selling things and crying out, uh, offering you a deal or whatever it may be. Maybe there's even some anxiety inside as you're afraid of getting separated or where am I going or I'm not sure what to do or where we're going to go or all of those sort of things. And all of that was kind of, kind of part of the Palm Sunday experience. That was the experience of the Jewish people as they came to Jerusalem at Passover time. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that there could have been two to three million people who would have gathered at Jerusalem, just overflowing it at this Passover time. Uh, hundreds of thousands of, of animals would have been slain as a part of this Passover observance and celebration. It was, it was large, it was crowded, it was dirty, it was noisy. It was all of these things. And into that setting, Jesus comes. Jesus comes rather uniquely on Palm Sunday. He comes dramatically as he makes an entrance that's, that's packed with all sorts of meaning. And I want to just remind you of, of some of those events. He comes riding on a donkey, a, a colt, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There was intentionality in his choice of transportation all this day. It was packaged with meaning and, yes, even humility. But not only that, uh, but there, there's the picture there in Scripture of people spreading their garments out on the road. And we can trace that back uh, to the Old Testament when Jehu was anointed as king. Second Kings 9 records it this way. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu, is 
king. And so there was no mistaking what people were, were saying as they, they put their garments on the road. And they continued with the waving of palm branches. It was a symbol of, of victory. It traces back to the time between the Old and the New Testaments uh, when the, the Hebrew people were, were under some uh, foreign control. And they rebelled against that. This was before the Romans uh, came to full power. And they rebelled against that uh, outside rule under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, uh, the hammer. And part of that, that process was they restored and rededicated the temple. And there was a waving of the palm branches, this symbol of victory uh, at that time. But not only that, but the scripture tells us that the people were shouting. They not only were had garments on the ground and palm branches in the air, but they were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. It was a cry. It was a cry of help. It was a cry of help from a distressed people to to a king or to God to to rescue us, to save us now. All of this is taking place as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. But as we follow the narrative in the Gospels, we find that Jesus came not only to Jerusalem, but he also came very specifically to the temple. And he came to the temple to declare himself king. Romans 19, beginning in verse 45, records just that part of it. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Then he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority. Now, when you think about this moment, when Jesus walks into the temple, it seems a bit odd. It seems a little strange what Jesus actually did. I mean, we're used to reading about Jesus uh, humble, Jesus healing people, Jesus teaching, Jesus uh, inviting children, Jesus reaching out to the outcast, all of these things. And then all of a sudden, we see Jesus in the temple and he's, and he's, he's flipping over tables. He's chasing out money changers. If you read the other gospel accounts, there, he fashions a whip of cords and perhaps uses that to help drive out the animals in the midst of all of this chaos and all of these people. Jesus is just turning things over. He is rearranging things. He is is absolutely creating chaos in the midst of, of this chaotic activity. And we have to ask why. What was important about it? Why, of all the things that Jesus could have done, did he go to the temple and create this chaotic scene? I think in order to understand that, we want to kind of ask three questions. And this will kind of be what I want to talk about 
today. What did the temple mean? What did the cleansing of the temple mean? And then in the midst of that, I want us to ask for you and I today, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? So let's start and talk about what did the temple mean? What did the temple mean to uh, the Hebrew people? Well, it, it meant a lot of things, but I want to just focus on, on three this, today. It was, first of all, the place to meet God. It was the place that you would go to meet God. In Deuteronomy 12, we're told, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. That even as he was telling them about this promised land, he said, there is going to be this special place, this place where my habitation will be. And there you shall go. And they didn't deny that, that, that God was everywhere. But there was this sense that if you truly wanted to meet God, you went to the temple. In fact, it is later on in Jesus' time when there was this division between the northern tribes and the, the southern tribe of Judah. Uh, there was this uh, understanding from the northern tribes that they tried to, tried to prevent people from going to Jerusalem. And so Jesus would encounter uh, this woman at the well and they would have this discussion and she asked the question, our fathers worshiped on this mountain where they were in the, in the northern part, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That there was something so significant about this place because this is the place where you go to meet God. This is the place where God's presence is in a very powerful way. This is the place that has the holy of holies. But it was not only a place to, to meet God, but it was also a place of sacrifice. It was the place where uh, people sacrificed. We, we see that as we follow those instructions in Deuteronomy 12. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. This was the place that you came and you came and you brought these offerings before God's presence. And the most powerful offering of all certainly was that that sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And that's what was taking place at this time. See, the sacrifices were a powerful reminder that you cannot approach a holy God without atoning for sin. And that may be a, something we've lost a sense of in our day and age. Uh, but the, the regular rhythm of the sacrifices, particularly here at Passover time, was a recognition of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, and that you and I cannot flippantly approach a holy God without a covering for our sin. And so the temple became this place to meet God. It became this place uh, to offer those sacrifices. But I want you to see one more thing. 
And that is that the temple was useful. It was instituted intentionally by God, but it was always designed by God to be a temporary provision. It wasn't God's plan for all times. It was a temporary provision that was designed to point beyond itself to the reality that was to come. The author of Hebrews helps us to understand that. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible. Notice this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifices in the temple were temporary because they pointed to a reality beyond themselves. They pointed toward the sacrifice that was to come. And we know now that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So this temple was this place to meet God, to offer sacrifices, but it was good and useful, but a temporary provision of God. So with all of that as background, then what did it mean for Jesus to cleanse the temple? What what, what was that about? What was Jesus trying to say by the cleansing of the temple? Three things. The first is Jesus demands spiritual reality and not just religious activity. That that Jesus demands from you and from me, not not just religious activity, but, but spiritual reality. So so he confronts them. You've you've taken this place that was supposed to be a place of prayer and you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this is a phrase that's oftentimes misunderstood and I think it helps to understand the context. The den of robbers actually comes, it's an Old Testament reference, it comes from the prophet Jeremiah and a warning to the people of his day. Jeremiah said, has this house which is called by my name, he's God's spokesman, spokesman, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, here's, here's let me teach on this for just a moment because maybe some of you have have heard some things through the years. Sometimes folks have looked at this and they look at that terminology, den of thieves or den of robbers, and they say, well, what Jesus was really upset about was he was really upset because they were taking advantage of people. They were hiking up the prices on on the animals or they were uh, charging exorbitant amounts to change the money, uh, all of those things. don't think that's actually it. In fact, is the, the evidence for that is, is not overwhelmingly compelling at best. Think about it. A den of robbers isn't where people go to rob. A den of robbers or a den of thieves, that's where you go to hide out after you have robbed. What Jesus was saying was the same thing that Jeremiah was saying. He was saying that you have tried to cover 
a life of living outside of God's will, of rebellion against God's will with meaningless religious activity. So this temple has become this hub of all of this religious activity, but your heart is not right with God. You live in rebellion against God outside of the temple courts, but then feel like you can come and do some religious things inside the temple courts, and somehow that covers a lifestyle of robbing God of his glory, of his honor, of what he is due. And so what Jesus is, is talking about here, that it's not so much what they were doing was wrong. It was just in the wrong place and what it had replaced. You see, actually there was a sense that they were providing a necessary service. You have perhaps millions of folks coming here. It, it's a whole lot easier for them to purchase an animal than to try to transport an animal all of that way. And so they're providing this kind of necessary service for them to be able to, to do the sacrifices. It wasn't, I don't think it was so much that what they were doing was wrong, but it was in the wrong place. It was probably in the court of the Gentiles, the only place a Gentile could go uh, to worship, to pray, to meet with God in that environment. And instead, it is, go back to what I had you imagine at first. Instead, it is this incredibly busy, chaotic, people jostling, people shouting, noise, merchandising going on, all of these things taking place. It wasn't so much that that was wrong. It was just in the wrong place. And what all of that activity had replaced was that that was no longer a place of prayer. That was no longer the place where you went and had this conversation with this holy God. Now let's think for a moment about what that might mean for you and for me. Tim Keller wrote this, sin is not simply doing bad things. It is putting good things in the place of God. So the only solution is not simply to change our behavior, but to reorient and center the entire heart and life on God. Listen, I, I'm not smart enough to understand everything that God's doing in the midst of our current crisis. But I, I'll tell you one thing I'm praying for. I'm praying for my life personally. I'm praying for our church family. I'm praying for our nation and our world. I'm praying in this time when he's made us pause, <laughs> he's allowed this virus to disrupt our routines, to bring chaos into our lives. I'm praying that he might help us to see some good things that have become bad things because they're in the wrong place and because of what they've replaced in our lives. I'm praying that God will show me and God will show you that this may be a unique opportunity in our lifetime to reorient and recenter our entire heart and life on God. It's not just about let's modify our behaviors for a few weeks. It's about God, how? What does it look like for me to allow my whole life to be reset and reoriented around you?
So a couple of questions about what this means to you and I today. Is there any place in my life where a good thing has become a bad thing because it's taken the place of God in the center of my heart and life? What does that look like for you? Another question. What are the things in my life that have crowded out the privilege and the priority of prayer in my life. Think about that. that. Perhaps, and I know some of your houses are very, very chaotic right now, but what are the things in my life? What are the things when, when before all of this broke, what are the things in my life that crowded out the privilege, because it is an incredible privilege to come before a holy God, to speak to the King of kings and Lord of lords as Abba, my Father. What is it? that tended to crowd out that privilege and that priority of prayer in my life. Jesus overturned the tables because a good thing had become a bad thing because it was taking place in the wrong place and because it had replaced that priority of prayer. But there's a second thing that the, the cleansing of the temple says to us, and that is that Jesus demands Authority. Jesus demands authority. And the, the people understood that. The religious leaders understood that. So when they're, they're seeing him cleanse and they're hearing his teaching, and they just, they come up point blank there in the first two verses of chapter 20 and tell, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who gives you the right to do this? I mean, when you think about it, Jesus comes in and he acts like he owns the place, right? <laughs> you don't go into somebody else's house and start rearranging the furniture. But if it's yours, you have the right. You have the authority to make all of those changes. Jesus reminds us in the cleansing of the temple that he demands authority. He owned the place. But today, it's even more personal. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What Paul reminds us of is that Jesus owns the place. He owns it by right of creation, that you and I were created by God. If we are a follower of Jesus Christ, he owns it by right of recreation, of redemption, of, of rescue. We doubly belong to him. We are not our own. Our bodies are not our own. We belong to him. And because we belong to him, he has the right to rearrange the furniture. You see, if Jesus is genuinely in your life, he is going to start to rearrange the furniture. He's going to say, some things are here that no longer belong here. And he's going to drive them out of our lives. He's going to say, there are some things that are here that, that are, need to be here, but they are in the wrong place. And so he begins to rearrange the furniture in our life. And so that leads to some questions. In what areas of my life, 
In what areas of my life and yours does Jesus want to rearrange the furniture? Is there something in my life that he says there's no longer a place for that? Is there something in my life or in your life that he says it's a good thing? It just needs to be rearranged. It's just in the wrong place. It still has a place in your life. It just has to be in a different place. Jesus demands spiritual reality. He demands authority. But the third thing his cleansing of the temple tells us is that Jesus declares that he is the final temple. That huge structure, that building of the temple was God's temporary provision. But Jesus said he is the final temple. In John's record of the the cleansing of the temple, uh, when they challenge him about his authority, about the signs that he has the right to do this, this is the dialogue. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus in this act of cleansing the temple was reminding them, this is a temporary provision. And that his body, he was indeed the final temple. He was the place where now you would go to meet God. He was the one who was declaring by his actions that he was God in person. You no longer had to go to this specific geographic place where God took up his habit, habit, inhabited, excuse me. Uh, but, but now he said, God is in person in Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that you encountered God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But not only is he declaring himself to be God in person, but he is saying, my death, his death on the cross would be the final sacrifice. And indeed, in just a few short years, after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as the message of the gospel began to spread out, there was going to come a time, exactly as Jesus foretold, that that temple, 46 years in the making, impressive as it could be, utterly destroyed. I've been to the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, and you can see still to this day huge stones that were thrown off of that Temple Mount as not one stone was allowed to remain upon another. No longer was that going to be a place of sacrifice because the final sacrifice had come and that was through Jesus Christ. So the question is, do I recognize Jesus to be fully God and that his death on the cross was the only sufficient provision for my sin and rebellion against God? Do I understand that he is who he claimed to be? 
And he did exactly what he said he was going to do by the life that he lived, the death that he died in my place, the the resurrection that we'll celebrate next week on Easter Sunday, God's, God's seal of approval, proof of who he was and what he had done. Do I recognize that Jesus is fully God and that his death on the cross was the only sufficient provision for my sin and rebellion against God? You know, you can think about it this way. A genuine Christian is someone who has had a personal Palm Sunday. A personal Palm Sunday. A a, a personal experience where, where we have personally called out to Jesus and asked him to save us by trusting in his perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection. As surely as those crowds were crying out, Hosanna, save now. We have to come to a point, we have to come to a moment in our life where we personally cry out to him. I can't save myself. Save me. Save now. So I ask you today, Have you had that moment? Have you personally called out to Jesus and asked him to save you, to do for you what only he can do? You can do that today, right where you are, right this moment, to just talk to him in prayer, have that conversation with God and just tell him, God, I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and he did what he claimed to do. And I admit my rebellion and my sin against you and I can't fix it on my own. And so I ask you to come in and save me. Forgive my sin, cleanse my sin by the payment that Jesus Christ paid on the cross. And then I ask you to come in and be the boss, the Lord, the king of my life. Because that's the second part of having that Palm Sunday? Are you living a life that's fully submitted to the authority of Jesus as your rightful king? You see, I'm concerned because I think there's a lot of folks that only heard part of the message. They like the idea of God rescuing them out of a pinch or being there kind of in case of emergency. But what Jesus declared when he went to the temple is not only was he the way back to God, but he was the king. He was the one who had rightful authority. That we belong to him. And to be in a right standing with him is is not only to to cry out to, to be forgiven, but it is to live my life fully submitted to his authority as my rightful king. Now, here's here's the great thing about it. I wouldn't want anybody else to be king except Jesus who loved me more than any other person, any other being has ever been able to love me, who knows me better than I know myself, the one who is full of love, who is full of wisdom, who is full of power. I've said it time and time again, if I knew what he knows, I would always want what he wants. The smartest thing I can do is to fully submit my life to his loving, wise authority as rightful king. And so I ask you on this Palm Sunday, maybe you're listening even as a follower of Christ Jesus, 
Are you living a life fully submitted to him? Could God be using this unusual time in your life to reorient you back to him as your rightful king? And so the last question is simply, what's next? What's your next step in your walk with Jesus Christ? I can't answer that for you. But I can promise you this, if you'll set your heart in a posture of obedience, God will communicate it to you in time and on time. It begins by crying out, save me. I submit fully to you. And then teach me your ways and I'll walk in them. My hope and prayer for you is that Palm Sunday won't just be a date on the calendar but it'll be the experience of your life. I pray more and more that you and I will live as those who have had a personal Palm Sunday. Would you join with me in prayer, please? Father, would you graciously speak personally to every person that's listening to the sound of my voice? Father, would you speak to us so personally that we know that next right step. And would you then fill us with courage, with grace, with power to take that step, trusting fully and completely in you. Father, this is our prayer together now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you to do just a couple of things. One, I want to encourage you to go back to those questions. We had little arrows beside them in the note-taking guide if you printed that off. And if you're alone, spend some time reflecting on them. If you're with some other folks, spend some time just talking about that. What would be your answers to those questions? And then I'm just going to say to you, if we can help you in your next step, we want to come alongside you. We just encourage you, uh, send us an email. You've seen some of the information in the, the intro and in the, uh, the exit uh, on this time. Or go to our church's website on the contact page. Reach out to us in whatever way you're comfortable because we want to come alongside you as you take your next step. I hope that you and I live as people who have a continual Palm Sunday and if God allows us to be back together, I can't wait to celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. God bless you.